and, and I'm uh, my home path in uh, Dharma practice is as a Zen practitioner. Although I uh, draw on the practices and teachings that come from the tradition of the elders, so I don't feel like quite as much of an interloper as might be initially thought. <laughs> uh, what I want to uh, talk about tonight has to do with uh, this miserable topic called suffering. <laughs> I'm told that uh, in Japan, uh, when a Buddhist priest walks by, people shudder because the Buddhist priests are the ones that take care of funerals and dying, and the Shinto priests do all the marrying and festivals, etc. <laughs> but it's uh, actually not so that Buddhists are dour, <laughs> down folk. Quite the opposite, I think. The um, first sermon or talk, teaching, that the Buddha Shakyamuni gave some few months after his final awakening, called the first turning of the wheel, is, I think, a quite remarkable and fundamental teaching. And I've been looking at that teaching and the commentaries on it recently, but for quite a long time. I've been, uh, in some ways, kind of marveling at the obvious but necessary uh, pointing in the Buddha's teaching, where he begins with the first noble truth, which is that the fact of suffering, that in this world in which we are born and we die, it is in the nature of this cycle of birth and death that there is suffering. And I think so that we don't have the wrong view about this teaching. We have to understand that there are other truths, not just the first one. There is also the truth, the teaching, the pointing out that the Buddha made, which is that there are causes for suffering, causes and conditions for suffering. And the third noble truth, which is that there is the possibility of cessation of suffering. And in the fourth noble truth, the articulation of the path for that liberation or cessation. What has been striking me now for quite a while is that uh, it's news, that first noble truth. <laughs> <laughs> How many of us don't know that we're suffering? There's um, often this analogy to being a patient, being someone who's not well. And how if you don't know that you're not well, you don't have any possibility then of looking into what might be the causes and conditions for your disease or injury whatever the unwellness is. And so you have no possibility of finding what the cure might be. So 
So what has been striking me in the last year or so as I've been paying closer attention to how important it is that we actually know, actually recognize, and develop our capacity to acknowledge suffering when suffering arises, and how much suffering comes when we don't do that. <coughs> Recently, uh, someone I know said to me, with a certain uh, amazement, I've lived 50 years and insisted that I was not suffering, didn't know I was suffering, told everybody I knew that I had an absolutely wonderful childhood that was like paradise. Nothing bad ever happened to me. And she said, it's only now that I've let myself look at what is actually so about my childhood and my growing up and my life. And what she, of course, uncovered was that she, at some level, was afraid if she let herself know about her suffering, the fear and suffering of that pain would kill her. I thought about that description. Because, of course, what I think actually happened was that in the turning away from her suffering, she died in a certain way. She kept herself for all this time from knowing that she was suffering and consequently from being motivated to discover more about that suffering and the possibility of liberation from it. I know someone else who has a tendency to um, give orders, tell people what they must do. <laughs> so in a meditation group, he would be prone to giving this announcement, the women in the group must never meet alone. <laughs> and as some of you can imagine, the women didn't like this order. <laughs> And he had a lot more suffering as a consequence of this announcement. <laughs> a lot of suffering. People are very unhappy with him, picking fights with him. What do you mean, telling me what to do? <coughs> Interestingly, this person sent me an email when I said, what's with this order about the women can't meet? <laughs> I got a message back. Email is great, you know. When you can't stand communicating any other way, there's always email. <laughs> it's just cool enough and distant enough so you might risk saying something. And what was so touching to me was that this person told me what he was afraid of. That he was afraid, he, he thought that in the past the women had met and probably said all kinds of uncharitable things about him. He didn't actually know, but he thought that's what had happened. And he began to talk to me about what he was afraid of, what he was afraid would happen, and how he came to this conclusion that the women shouldn't meet. 
And what is so touching and, to me, heartbreaking is that if he had said that, this is what I'm afraid of. Just now, fear arises when I think about the possibility of our group ending, of people leaving, of me being abandoned. So easy to hear that with kindness instead of this, what do you mean? (laughs) How often do we go to outcome, to trying to control how things will be because we're afraid of the outcome if we just allow it to go its course and miss out on the possibility of being present with what's arising and taking our chances. (laughs) So I think that, in fact, um, Shakyamuni Buddha is pointing to this first noble truth about the fact of suffering is very important. When we know about suffering, our own and others, one of the great consequences, positive consequences, is tremendous motivation to look into what is the suffering I can do something about. Simply recognizing suffering leads to the possibility of some insight about what is going on. We can begin to see slowly, more clearly, if I do this, this arises. If I speak harshly or in anger, suffering follows. For example, (laughs) so although this first turning of the wheel may look like it's uh, kind of a downer, (laughs) I don't think that's the case at all. In fact, the Buddha's teaching laid out in this first turning of the wheel is great news. Because what he was laying out was a methodology for our liberation from suffering. One of the uh, questions that comes up and that I want to raise for our consideration this evening is to ask ourselves, uh, what were the preliminaries? What were the foundational trainings that the Buddha went through leading up to his awakening and his great insight about the nature of our lives and the path of cessation or liberation. The first turning of the wheel uh, he delivered to the five ascetics with whom he had practiced for a long time. As I recall, something like six years. And as Uh, the terminology suggests they practiced um, great limitations, eating just barely enough to stay alive. And at the end of six years practice, the Buddha decided that this was not an effective way to come to the realizations that he was looking for. And so he gave up 
this ascetic path. And the five ascetics that he was practicing with were very disgusted with him. <laughs> he bailed out on us. He left the group. <laughs> so he went off on a different track. And then after his great awakening in under the Bodhi tree, a few months later, he went and gathered the ascetics and gave this teaching. So my question about what were the foundational trainings for him applies also to these five ascetics who themselves came to full awakening. One on the occasion of this teaching and the others, the other four, very soon after. Because, of course, this teaching on the Four Noble Truths is hopefully accessible to all of us. And we read these teachings and think, oh, now if I meditate on each of the Four Noble Truths, then at some point I'll become enlightened. <laughs> but it's not so simple. <laughs> There's some other work we have to do first. <laughs> And we need to um, look into, unpack what that preliminary work is. It is suggested in this great and ancient tradition that the ground is that of compassion, the cultivation of compassion. And I find that if I think about the cultivation of compassion, work with the cultivation of compassion, in my own heart and life, that includes the cultivation of some knowing in a deep way about generosity and gratitude and tenderness and kindliness, sympathy for myself and others. These are some of the elements that arise as compassion. The Buddha and his companions were already trained in what is sometimes called the path of virtue. Not in much evidence in our current time, but needs to be, I think. Interestingly, the uh, path of virtue or morality uh, is sometimes talked about as uh, the path that leads us to the dissolving or falling away of conflict. So in the training for morality or virtue or ethics, we have the pre what we call the precepts. And in all of the schools and traditions of Buddhism, the there are five precepts that are the same throughout. Not to intentionally kill, not to take what is not given, not to engage in sexual misconduct, not to lie, not to intoxicate mind or body of self or other. I think it's very interesting to think of these precepts as pointing to the behavior that um, is conflicted. I think that's very useful. Think for a moment about what happens when you lie to someone. Do you have some inner sense of conflict? I think so. We don't want to be found out. <laughs> so
So this training in morality or virtue is about the cultivation of our discovery, uh, discovering, unpacking our capacity to live without conflict, where we're aligned, where we have some kind of alignment with what we are about in ourselves in an internal way as well as in the externals of our lives. It's a path really about the cultivation of a kind of transparency. Stephen Levine sometimes talks about this magic hat, which if you wear it, everybody within 50 feet will know everything you're, say you're thinking. <laughs> and I think that the uh, training in virtue or ethics or morality might be the training which would lead to our willingness to wear such a hat. <laughs> what a relief. <laughs> These uh, six guys, if you will, the Buddha and the ascetics, <laughs> also were very trained in concentration and in mindfulness. So they already had some significant ground under them. I think that's very important for us to understand that we can't just sit on our cushions and do our mindful, mindful walking and one of these days enlightenment will just rain on us. It will come from some magical heaven. This is a tradition that points out a path, a methodology, a sequence of trainings that lead to our uncovering and cultivating capacities that exist in each of us, in every one of us. <coughs> I have um, sitting on the altar in the meditation hall at our temple a uh, stone, small stone. Some of you may have heard me talk about this stone before. It's a stone I picked up when I was uh, teaching one time up in Alaska. Uh, and the top of the stone is covered with barnacles, maybe an inch of barnacles. So if you look at the stone from the top, all you can see are the barnacles. <coughs> but if you look at it from the side, you can see the stone and the barnacles on, are on top. My own experience is that in many ways, what we're doing when we talk about cultivating a Dharma practice is working the barnacles down. <laughs> first of all, getting to see that there are bar barnacles. That's the first noble truth. <laughs> the barnacles called suffering. And then slowly beginning to develop the capacities that lead to our seeing how to dissolve and dismantle the barnacles called conditioning, called habit. And when we have dissolved or dismantled enough of those barnacles, we begin to have these tastes, these flashes of our capacity to be present and to be awake that every one of us has a capacity for, but we begin to have some way of accessing 
those capacities. I think particularly in the beginning stages of uh, Dharma practice, sometimes we may feel when we begin to see the barnacles, we may have some moments when we think, ugh, I can't do it, it's too much. But I think that if we're fortunate, if we have some good guidance and consistency, we will begin to have brief moments when we taste freedom, when we taste liberation from habitual, reactive ways of being, that give us some glimpse, some taste of the possibility of real liberation. (coughs) One of the um, characteristics in the Buddhist teachings is his insistence that nobody can do our work for us. We each get to do our own work. So he's pointing to a path which he uncovered, discovered, cultivated. So we have the great the example of the Buddha and of many, many practitioners, including practitioners alive in the world today, who have cultivated great capacities for realization and this condition we call being awake. But the bottom line has to do with, do I get myself up onto my cushion into my meditation seat, in a chair, wherever it is, on a regular basis, and most importantly, take what I'm working with into the details of every day. How do I cultivate concentration and mindfulness? By practicing cultivation of concentration and mindfulness. Not so differently from the way I practiced the piano when I was little. And I hope I do better with (laughs) concentration and mindfulness than I did with the piano. Constancy, consistency is crucial. But I think what most of us don't realize is that we can begin modestly. Someone told me recently that she read an article in the Yoga Journal about meditating for 10 minutes. And she said, you know, I couldn't believe that that would make any difference. It seemed too small. She said, I had a very cynical reaction. 10 minutes, ugh. But what I know is if you start with what is absolutely guaranteed doable, and of course the definition of doable is made by each one of us. (laughs) If we start with five or ten minutes of training for concentration, awareness of breath, awareness of physical posture, 
the classical uh, meditation for concentration is, is on the breath. And that if I do that for five minutes every day, or ten minutes every day, I either do it or I don't do it. And if I don't do it, I can't tell myself it's because I don't have time. It just doesn't hold up to scrutiny. (laughs) (laughs) What happens if I say, oh, I'm going to meditate for an hour every morning, 4.30 in the morning? (laughs) It's the kind of thing Zen people do. And what often happens is the minute they leave the training center, they don't meditate at all because, you know, they just, it's, unless you've got somebody who's going to come shake you out of bed and all those other people, you'd be embarrassed not to show up and all that stuff. It's not so easy to meditate for an hour at 4.30 or 5 or 5.30 or 6 in the morning. And especially if you're practicing by yourself. So you say, ah, I'm inspired, I'm going to sit every morning. And you may do it for two or three mornings, and then you don't. And you feel terrible. You feel terrible about yourself. You feel discouraged. If you've got that kind of yapping, judging voice, that yapping, judging voice has a field day. telling you what a creepy meditator you are, and besides that, you're a lousy person, and you have a weak spine, and blah, 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 blah. (laughs) So this is what leads to our discouraging ourselves, and in a very real way, sabotaging what may be a quite authentic and sincere intention to develop a Dharma practice, to cultivate, among other things, concentration. Discipline, uh, mindfulness, loving kindness, whatever the focus of our practice is. And over and over again what I've seen is that if someone picks up the practice they're going to do for five or ten minutes and no matter what they do it, after a little while what arises is, oh, I'm actually sustaining some training, some discipline. And what gradually emerges is some recognition of our capacity to actually do what we said we were going to do, to stay with the practice, and to begin to see the benefits of a very brief practice like that in the rest of the day. And so there comes to be a much more organic process where we then go from sitting for 10 minutes a day to sitting for 12 or 15 or maybe 20. So I'm a great believer in uh, modest beginnings. It also helps, of course, as you know, to have company, good company. I think particularly because we live in a world and at a time when we are so bombarded by distraction. We have so much sensory overload. Doing something like sitting down and being quiet for a little while is quite radical, actually. 
quite radical. To actually sit down and be quiet, to take a posture where we're aligned and grounded and centered and still for a short time every day is revolutionary. And increasingly, we live in a world where fewer and fewer of us have confidence in our capacity to bring our awareness to some one point and stay focused. Our mind wanders off or we go to sleep. We get a little antsy and restless. But part of that is because we aren't accustomed to quiet. We aren't accustomed to just sitting down, being still. So one way of beginning with the cultivation of concentration or one-pointed awareness, the training in one-pointed awareness, is to begin with sitting down, not even for 10 minutes, just sitting down for a full inhalation and exhalation. Uh, sometimes a sitting meditation is described as sitting down, sitting still, and sitting long. And many of us think it all happens at once, but it can happen in stages. There's a uh, fairly new um, commentary by His Holiness the Dalai Lama on the first turning of the wheel called The Four Noble Truths. One of these little books that seems to be very popular these days. The littler they are, the harder it is to hold them open and read them for very long. <laughs> but we can carry them around with us in our pocket. We may never open them. Anyway, partway through the uh, text, um, His Holiness says something quite remarkable. He said, uh, my practice is very poor. No, my practice is poor. My practice is very, very poor. I think, oh. <laughs> if your practice is poor, what is mine? <laughs> ah, comparative thinking, judging, stop it. <laughs> but what he goes on to say, which I found so interesting, he said, you know, I do many practices. Any of you who know a Tibetan system, very elaborate meditations, so elaborate that your mind can't wander off because it's got so much to do. So, you know, for example, one of his practices would be to visualize the um, deity here in this tanka with a accompanying mantra and quite elaborate visualization. So he said, you know, my practice is filled with deity practices and mandala offerings and many mantras, etc. And he then goes on to say something quite radical. You know, maybe this is all a distraction or off the point. Because every day, no matter what, <coughs> my focus in my meditation is also on the Buddha's teachings on the Four Noble Truths and on the cultivation of bodhicitta, the heart-mind aspiration for awakening in order to benefit all beings. And he talks a lot in this text about the formal practice being like ch the time when we charge our batteries. 
And the real test is, the real practice is in the midst of our daily lives. I think that's right. So if I take one focus, if I pick up the focus on one-pointed awareness or mindfulness or loving-kindness, and that's what I work with in my formal sitting practice of five or ten minutes or whatever, the length of time. But I then find ways of bringing that training into the details of my daily life. What I begin to experience is a kind of seamlessness between when I'm so-called practicing and when I'm not. And there is a real thrill when we begin to discover that we can do that. We can use any and every situation as a source of opportunity for cultivation of the mind, which begins with understanding and studying the mind, knowing when suffering arises, (coughs) knowing when fear arises, knowing when joy arises. I think for many of us, we uh, imagine that awakening means the end of suffering, means the end of having our legs hurt when we sit cross-legged. I remember one session some years ago when I was sitting with Suzuki Roshi, and toward the end of the session, he looked around and he said, I know you all think that my legs don't hurt because I've been practicing for so many years, but you're wrong. And I was so appalled. (laughs) His legs hurt too? You mean my legs are going to hurt always? (laughs) Probably. Some days they don't. Some days they do. These days I can't even cross my legs. I have a bone spur in one hip, so I get to enjoy sitting on a chair. So what's the point? What changes? The way I react or respond to what is so. That's what changes. So it's not so much that we're on a path that is about becoming someone different, being different, but we're on a path that's about discovering much more of a range of possibilities in the way we meet whatever is so in any given moment. And beginning to see the suffering that we are generating, that we could discover a way to cease. (laughs) Reactivity. Believing certain kinds of thoughts. Somebody told me recently that there is somebody or some energy, God or somebody, that says, you will never earn more money than you need to just barely make it. (laughs) And I thought, boy, that's a setup. And he believes this thought. And I said, but it's just a thought. And maybe it's not so reliable. That's what I mean, you know. A thought arises, do we let it be in the driver's seat? Or do we recognize, oh, thought. 
lots of thoughts are not reliable. <laughs> Don't believe everything you think. <laughs> Don't believe that everything you feel is going to last forever. So what I want to encourage you all to, uh, to do is to understand that the small ways in which you establish a regular practice will lead to the cultivation that is the ground, the foundation for becoming awake as the Buddhas have become awake. And that we have a great opportunity to wake up at a time when the world we live in needs more of us being awake. We need that for ourselves, but we also need it for each other. So, we have a few minutes left. I wonder if anybody has a question or something you want to bring up for us to talk about on these wonderful, miserable topics. <laughs> Everybody has it all figured out. Yes. Hi. Hi. Um, I'm interested in how the Four Noble Truths and the use of them in daily life relate to sudden situations where one's duty might be, one's sense of duty might be called into question, like defending somebody or getting involved in something that maybe you shouldn't be involved in or something that you feel you should be involved in. Well, you know, one of the uh, consequences of regularly sitting down and getting quiet is that you begin to uh, slowly develop more attention in those moments when there's some trouble or difficulty or, uh-oh, maybe I shouldn't be here. And we don't really have to make big decisions to begin to change our behavior because seeing, oh, maybe I shouldn't be here, itself has some consequence. I begin to think about where I'm going before I go there, after I find myself in a difficult situation very often. So there is a kind of uh, insight that begins to arise as the consequence of practicing showing up in the moment, which is one way of thinking of meditation practice. Those difficult situations, those challenging situations are, among other things, the times when we get to see what's actually so about our minds, how we react to difficulty. So from the standpoint of studying the mind, that's very useful, extremely useful. But, you know, what, what we're about is very much a long, steady, gradual process. And the place to begin is right now. <laughs> There's certain kinds of work that we probably will not be able to do so effectively in the midst of crisis. And one of the problems with a time when the seas are more calm is we relax and think, oh, I don't have to get up and meditate or practice. Everything's cool. I'm fine. This will last forever. This is one of the sufferings 
that those calm times don't last forever. One of a number of sufferings. So part of the training program is, the, is disciplining ourselves to begin to understand it is in those times when everything is going fairly smoothly that I can bring some real energy and attention to training the mind. That's the time when I can actually do some work. When I'm in the middle of a big mess, often all I can do is just hold on to my hat and wait until the plane lands or whatever. Because there's so much going on and turmoil and all the rest of it. In time, I think we begin to develop, because there's real methodology in this system, we begin to develop capacities that arise in the midst of challenge. But I don't think we start there. Yes? I can't hear you. Well, to give you a, a useful answer to that question, I'd have to ask you for a lot more detailed description about what you mean by depression, because that term gets used to cover a multitude of things. One thing I do know is that actually taking on a practice with some consistency that's modest is a tremendous antidote because there's a, some energy begins to arise from doing that. And one of the challenges with depression is this kind of energetic shutdown. But this is where working with someone who has some experience and can help you find a particular practice that will be appropriate can be very helpful. Uh, sometimes a still practice is not so appropriate for someone who is working with depression, for example. Um, a moving practice may, or a practice that's more focused on the cultivation of generosity or loving kindness um, may be more appropriate. This actually leads into something I wanted to say a few words about. Jack actually asked me to talk about this a little bit this evening. I guess last uh, Monday night there was someone who was here who um, was quite disturbed mentally and physically. I was for a number of years the secretary for the San Francisco Zen Center from the time at the beginning of the founding of Tassajara. So I was the doorkeeper for many years. And... Uh, so over the years, I actually was the person who took care of people who showed up, like the person who showed up last Monday night. And I think it's very important for us to understand that quiet, still meditation is both a great magnet and not the right fit, particularly <coughs> when you're working with a want of groundedness and disturbed mental states. 
So, you know, it's uh, no surprise to me that something like that might have happened given that the winter retreat is happening. It's like a kind of generator thrumming around just up the hill. And although you may not think that anybody can see what's going on, people can feel the energy from a retreat. It's quite palpable. And particularly for people who are in a very sensitive, though unstable, state of mind, that can be quite a draw. The fact that we are gathered together tonight, uh, sitting together and listening together to my Dharma talk, there's a kind of collective energy that we generate in the room that is palpable and is a draw. So what is now um, presented as the skill required for all of us, but particularly for the staff here, is to know how to gently guide someone who is not in the most appropriate and wholesome place for them, depending on their condition, out of the situation, both for the sake of the meditation, the container for meditation, but also for that person's own well-being. And I think what happens when you have someone who's uh, disturbed somehow or another come into a meditation space is that uh, we all resonate with each other. And so what may get um, agitated a little bit is whatever fear any one of us may have for our own capacity for instability or ungroundedness. And so we can get a little bit fearful or frightened. I think that's quite understandable. So one of the practices that I've done for a long time, whenever I sit down to meditate, no matter where I am, I imagine a a kind of circle of protection around my seat. Not protection in terms of keeping anything out, but just attention and awareness. And it is the responsibility of all of us to, um, to do that. Nobody else should drew that circle of protection around someone else's seat. And over time, this community of practitioners, of which you are part, will become more and more skillful in knowing how to help someone who is here in a way that isn't a good fit for them to go to another room or another place and have the kind of attention that they need. And our task is to cultivate our capacity for compassion for that place in ourselves that gets resonated with some agitation or discomfort or fear, but to also extend our compassion for that person in their suffering. There's a very fine line between what we in our society and culture call craziness and great sensitivity and awakening. It's a very fine line. And there's a way in which um, a person who's in a very sensitive and heightened state, which may accompany a want of groundedness and, and real disturbance, senses the wholesome and positive energy that's in this collective battery that we're recharging. 
So I think it's useful for us to understand that. And not turn away from whatever arises within us under such a circumstance. Is that you, John, back there? Um, John Taffer said that he would stay uh, and discuss with any of you who were here last week and want to talk about what happened and what came up for you. So I'll end my remarks. And um, thank you all for being here tonight. Thank you for your kind and good attention. I'd like to close with a dedication, please. May we dedicate all that is wholesome and positive that arises from our time of practice together in meditation and in a listening and speaking of the truth of the Dharma. May we dedicate this wholesome energy that all beings may have happiness and the causes of happiness, that all may be free from suffering and the causes of suffering, that all may never be separated from the sacred happiness devoid of suffering, that all may live in equanimity without too much attraction or too much aversion, and that all may live believing in the equality of all who live. Um, I'm going to leave a few flyers outside. I'm doing a ceremony in three weeks for anyone who is grieving with a a miscarriage or abortion. And I'm doing the ceremony at Green Gulch, and I'll leave flyers that describe the ceremony if any of you would like to come or you want to talk to me about the ceremony, there's a phone number where you can call me. Thank you very much.